This is Ethan Levy, and you're listening to Quarter Spiral's Game Dev Life Podcast. Of all the game designers I know, Teal Fristo has taken one of the most interesting routes through the game dev life. We met initially when he was a developer at Playfirst, but eventually left the startup world to pursue a doctorate in game studies at UC Santa Cruz. Three and a half years into his program, he discovered that the life of research laid before him was not his true calling, and dropped out to design board games full-time. One successful Kickstarter campaign later, and Teal's Nothing Sacred Games is now just weeks away from self-publishing the political satire game, Corporate America. Teal, just to start off, um, how might people know you? What have you uh, put out on the internet that that, uh, gamers may or may not have seen? I've released uh, two Flash games uh, to varying success. Um, One is called Arachnophilia, and it's a game in which uh, the player is a spider and creates a web. Uh, That game's done fairly well as far as Flash games go. Uh, And I also created a game uh, called As I Lay Dying, which is a morbid puzzle platformer Loosely inspired by the Faulkner novel of the same name. That that game's done a little less well, so you may not have heard that one, but it's out there. That was um, definitely more on the, I mean, both very uh, kind of on the indie spectrum, as I lay dying, more of an art narrative-driven <laughs> game. Um, Arachnophilia, almost an educational uh, kind of naturalist game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really like to kind of explore with themes and, uh, you know, try to avoid sort of some of the more common ones that you find in games all the time. So there's those are the games that I've released so far. Um, over the past year or so, I've also been blogging quite a bit, which uh, probably not very many game players have seen, but maybe some game designers have seen. <coughs> cool. Yeah, I know so- sometimes I post repost your stuff on Reddit and see if I can spark an interesting conversation off of it. Yeah, one Um, very recently did very well from that, so thank you. (laughs) No worries. Um, So you have kind of an interesting journey as a game developer. Uh, When we first met, it was because we were working together at a place called Playfirst, and you left Playfirst as a coder to get a doctorate in game development. Is that right? Um, it's pretty close. I, I actually uh, just wanted to get a doctorate in computer science, um, and I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz, where it just so happened that there was a new uh, game program starting. So I kind of lucked out in that I uh, ended up uh, getting accepted into a lab called the Expressive Intelligence Studio um, under uh, Noah Wardrop-Fruin and Michael Matias, two really uh, brilliant guys. Um, And so my sort of general interest in computer science and wanting to sort of take my education to the next level uh, ended up going into games, which is, you know, what I'm most passionate about. That's kind of how I ended up getting into the uh, doctorate program for for games there. Got it. And when you're studying development at that sort of post-bachelor's level, what are you? What are you studying? What? How much is research? How much is self-guided? Uh, how much is student projects? Like, I'm just kind of curious about what it's like trying to become a 
doctor of video games. <laughs> yeah, I still, uh, I mean, it's, it's very open. That's what I would say first. People can approach it from many different directions. I would say that the focus is very much on research, um, although that may differ based on where you are. The University of California system is very much a research institute. It's all about publishing papers effectively. The research on games is very broad, and honestly, sort of from a uh, technical perspective, it's still pretty new and ill-defined, I would say. But there's also research from humanist perspective, so like creating interesting games that uh, sort of address issues, almost like creating art or, or literature or something like that. That wasn't my focus, which maybe it should have been given my interest, but anyways. And then there's also sort of a, a social science perspective where you're studying game cultures and sort of like how people approach games, how games fit into people's lives, social networks around games, that kind of thing. And within that kind of amorphous blob of the overall topic of games, what were you doing research in? What were you working towards? Uh, my focus ended up uh, being on using games for education. So uh, I was working, uh, I worked uh, for two summers as an intern at Microsoft Research, where I was helping to develop Kodu, um, mm -hmm. which is a programming language that allows kids to make their own games, like on the Xbox or on the PC. So I was kind of looking at Kodu as a programming language and thinking about how to uh, modify the language or add to the language to enable kids to create uh, more expressive games. So sort of create games that are more unique to them as individuals and allow, you know, less as clones of sort of traditional arcade games, which is how the the language got started. Right. Uh, and I believe Kodu is the bones behind the recently announced Project Spark for the next Xbox. I wouldn't be surprised. I know that they've been planning a, a sequel to Kodu for years now. Um, so uh, that's exciting. I, di I didn't realize that it had been announced and everything. Oh, cool. So you were working on Kodu. You were studying research at, uh, educational applications for games. Mm -hmm. And where did corporate America enter the picture? <laughs> well, uh, so... Because if uh, I remember right, you were working on it while you were still in school. It's true, yeah. Um, which may be one of the reasons that I uh, ended up leaving school a little prematurely. Um, so I kind of mentioned that uh, the uh, grad school experience is largely self-guided. Uh, one of the opportunities that I decided to pursue was looking into game design more. Because I come from a very technical background, a computer science background, but I've always been interested in design and psychology um, and that side of things. So um, I was TAing classes that were game design classes, and I took the opportunity to basically read a bunch of game design books. Um, and the very first seed for Corporate America came from reading Tracy Fullerton's uh, game design workshop. I was basically uh, actually on a plane flying to uh, France um, where I was going to a conference, uh, and um, read the section on economies and games and thought about how our current economic situation, which was recently floored by the housing crisis um, and kind of continued to get floored by all sorts of 
other uh, problems. I How believe that it was a global economic meltdown. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought, doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> I basically started thinking about, um, I mean, the original idea was to create a game in which the players create a bubble, an economic bubble, and the sort of climax of the game would be the bubble popping. And God, that, that sounds like a good game. <laughs> yeah, and I, I still think it is. And I've also learned since then that there are a number of games that uh, tackle that issue. Um, but as I was brainstorming and thinking about it more, I kind of realized that I don't understand economic bubbles enough to sort of create an artificial one. So what ended up happening was a lot of the um, ideas that I was thinking around that, sort of based on modern economics or our modern economy, global economy, could be an interesting game even without the sort of uh, economic bubble component of it. I, I took some classes in college as well from Tracy Fullerton and Chris Swain and that book, you know, I've had kind of a mixed history with game design textbooks being a mm -hmm. professional designer, but that, that book and the class they taught on it and specifically pen and paper prototyping, I always credit as what helped make me a real game designer. Yeah. So... It's interesting to hear it bubble up there as well. So you were you were working on educational games. You started to get more into the game design spectrum while TAing. You started developing your own board games, right? Yeah. And um, ultimately, how how long between when you first started prototyping or first started exploring designing and uh, when you decided to leave academia? Well, I mean, throughout the time that I was in school, I was designing games kind of on my own. Um, mm -hmm. I'd finished Arachnophilia before I started school, and I'd started another game shortly after that, a game that I have yet to release. Um, uh, still on the back burner at the moment. And I was working on that throughout school, and as I lay dying, ended up being a project for a class um, which I then sort of took to the next level and developed until I released it. And before I was working on Corporate America, I was working on another board game <clears throat> that was based on the Cold War. Um, and I actually spent a long time working on that game and was fairly successful. I got a couple of groups to play test extensively and continue to have a community around the game, even when I was no longer present. Um, oh, wow. But the the game had issues that were apparent to me, and after I pitched it to a publisher or two and got negative responses, I decided that I wanted to try something else for a while, and uh, Corporate America was kind of, uh, you know, I, I kind of talked about it from a thematic point of view previously, but from a mechanical point of view, I wanted to address some of those issues that I had with the previous game. So throughout, throughout school, I was um, prototyping and developing games Corporate America specifically, I uh, was working on for maybe five or six months uh, before I decided to uh, leave Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. Teal left UC Santa Cruz to become a full-time maker instead of a researcher. Although he has been developing Corporate America for some time, there are more real-world challenges to manufacturing a physical good than releasing a digital game. Teal finished the game's design, found a printer, set a goal, and launched a Kickstarter campaign to fund the first printing of Corporate America. 
I assume it wasn't an easy decision. You were several years into a doctor's level degree at that point, right? Yeah, it was a very difficult decision. One of the most difficult decisions I've uh, made in my life. I was uh, about three and a half years in and I was doing well as far as being on track. So I had about a year and a half to go, um, assuming things continued to go in the right direction. I was working with awesome people. I was living in a great place. You know, Santa, I've, I've lived in many different places and Santa Cruz tops the list. And uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Oakland, Oakland can't compare right now. <laughs> <laughs> Oakland has its charms, but uh, <laughs> Santa Cruz definitely uh, ekes it out a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a very difficult decision for me. Ultimately, what, what ended up kind of being the deciding factors were kind of getting burnt out on the research I was doing. I was working both from a technical uh, standpoint, like developing the tool and also teaching classes. So teaching, um, you know, groups of middle school students. And sometimes that was extremely rewarding. Sometimes it felt great. I would get, you know, kids that never knew that they were interested in programming, really take to it and love it. Uh, but occasionally I would get classes that were more babysitting than teaching, um, right. where kids didn't really want to do anything. It was not what I wanted to spend my time doing. So that definitely made me not terribly interested. And also kind of realizing that getting a doctorate basically set me up for continuing to do research for the rest of my life. Um, and sort of realizing that research may not be what I was most passionate about. Mm. I mean, the fact that I was prototyping and developing games throughout the entire time that I was at school may indicate like what I really am passionate about, which is creating games, creating experiences for people. Now, my belief that getting a PhD kind of just set me up for doing the same thing for the rest of my life, that may have been a little bit naive, I'm not sure. Um, mm -hmm. But it seemed to me like spending another year and a half getting a degree probably wouldn't pay off, especially considering, um, maybe you have some insight on this yourself, but in the games industry, like higher degrees are not always looked on favorably. Um, yeah, I would say they're not looked on disfavorably, but I, I mean, we talked about that post I just read the other day that when, when I've been evaluating a designer to work with, it's all about their portfolio of work and whether they're a fit for the team or not. So yeah. even a bachelor's degree is unnecessary if you have a crazy good portfolio but in general, college is when you build that first portfolio. But I've worked with plenty of people who have master's degrees out of uh, Carnegie Mellon and USC, and I don't know that you necessarily enter the workforce with more, a greater quantity of valuable experience. Mm -hmm. In my experience on the corporate end, it all depends on your actual level of motivation and how you apply yourself during school. Like, school is an opportunity to make stuff. Yeah, that's kind of the impression that I got. Uh, if you put a, you know, PhD specifically, maybe to a lesser degree, master's, mm -hmm. um, on your resume, people might raise their eyebrows and say, why did you spend so long in school? Right. Why weren't you actually creating something? Yeah. You know, it's possible to create stuff while you're working on, on those degrees, but you're kind of, you know, you're sacrificing something. Uh, a right. lot of my time was dedicated to research, which um, is great. I mean, like, I was, 
I felt like I was uh, discovering interesting things and making contributions, but uh, those aren't the sort of interesting things and contributions that are necessarily relevant to creating interesting games. That makes sense. So you saw before you a path, one path kind of leading to being a, I assume, being some level of college professor, doing a lot of research, mm-hmm. in another path that was creating, and you chose to be a creator. Yeah, basically. Uh, you know, another consideration for me was that I kind of always wanted to be an indie. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I released my previous games independently, uh, basically. I wanted to try it to see if I could do it full time. In life, <laughs> the opportunity to do that sort of thing dwindles away as you get more responsibilities. Uh, right. So while I was still relatively young, I wanted to give it a shot. So for those that don't know, how about you describe Corporate America? Corporate America is a political satire game. It's kind of poking fun of corporate influence over government in the world in which we live right now, which is a little bit of an unusual topic. Very few board games specifically, but games in general, I feel, address sort of contemporary issues. And when we talk about the time frame of Corporate America, you might understand why, so few do. But um, So in corporate America, all of the players are corporations uh, trying to make as much money as they can. And the way they do that is by starting businesses, uh, which are in a number of different industries, and sort of manipulating people to buy their products in the, in the industries that they're in. In addition to just straight up manipulating people, every turn of the game, somebody becomes president. And the president basically runs the government, and the government can pass laws. And the laws will generally either help or hurt certain industries, so they're going to help or hurt you and your the other players, or they'll change the rules of the game. They'll make certain things illegal or certain things permissible or whatever. Something I think that's worth pointing out, a strong suit of the game, is that it is a political satire game. And so there's a lot of humor injected through it. It's not a board game equivalent of having an unpleasant political conversation with a relative at a family gathering. I can remember one of the first conversations I had with a friend when I was kind of thinking about the game, and I brought it up to him as daily show style humor and ideology in a board game. And my question was, like, would anybody be interested in that? There aren't a lot of other games that are about that sort of thing, so I didn't really know. But I'm happy to say, since the game has been up on Kickstarter and everything, uh, the answer seems to be yes. There is interest in games like that. Um, Can you give us an example of some of the cards that get the funniest responses in your uh, playtests? Sure. Uh, One very popular... uh, card is the Defense of Marriage Act, which is a law that the government can pass, and it does nothing. Um, (laughs) Now, it it actually says does nothing on it, um, which uh, I'm happy to say that probably a lot of people would uh, maybe agree with these days. Of course, it does affect people, but it doesn't affect businesses, right? It doesn't affect how much money people are making, and the game is all from the perspective of corporations. But while the, while the card does say it does nothing, it actually does satisfy protests. Um, in the game, you have protesters of different ideologies that will come up occasionally. And uh, the Defense of Marriage Act does satisfy the uh, Christian and the conservative protesters. That card gets a lot of laughs, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Something that's really interested, I mean, I think that corporate America, when I've read through the cards and looked at the prototypes, and it feels very rooted in a specific political moment, kind of the time between the global economic meltdown and the latest U.S. election. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like if only the game could have been in stores <laughs> in, you know, October, November, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> it would have it would have really been a hit. Looking at, I mean, that's an interesting uh, difference between digital and board games is that you are printing cards, you're printing humor and trying to capture it, and hoping that you know when people are playing it a year or two later that it's still relevant. Yeah, very much. Um, and that was actually one of the criticisms that I got when I started publicizing the game a little bit more. Um, people thought that. It was so temporal, you know. Uh, the jokes would wear thin because uh, political debate shifts so quickly. Um, mm -hmm. One of the good, a good example of a card is SOPA, the Stop Online Piracy Act, which um, the sort of mentality behind it continues to be pushed forward uh, in the government, but. After the backlash that SOPA had in uh, you know, probably, I don't remember exactly, maybe uh, just a year ago or something, a year and mm -hmm. a half ago, the phrase SOPA will never be used again um, right. in legislation. So will people a year from now even know what SOPA is? Do people now know what SOPA is? Uh, right. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> like you said, one of the big differences between digital and non-digital games, which I've learned um, is uh, that it takes a lot longer to get a non-digital game out there. And one of, this, one of the reasons that I think people choose to use fantasy settings or historical settings for non-digital games is that they've kind of already proven their longevity. So right. you, you can safely assume that World War II or the Civil War or whatever are going to be known in 100 years or 200 years um, or even 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't know if uh, Obamacare, another card from the game, is going to have that lifetime or not. People right. may not think of it like that anymore. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a bit of a challenge. I, my response to that is that, you know, in some ways the game is sort of like a snapshot. Um, it's kind of capturing this moment in history when people did care a lot about these issues. Um, you know, another example is the uh, Occupy movement, which has pretty much died down. I mean, there's still some remnants on the internet or whatever, but you don't have the huge protests like we had two years ago or whatever. But, you know, people cared very much about them. In some ways, that was our generation's anti-war movement or civil rights movement or whatever. So my hope is that the game sort of captures that moment in time and allows people to sort of relive, relive that, remember the passion that they felt during, during uh, those times. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think I can point to another board game or even a digital game off the top of my head that so much tries to capture and make commentary on a specific moment in American history. It's really interesting. There's a little bit of a fringe movement uh, about political games and news games, but those tend to be very small, like web games or something. Um, 
that you can sort of digest in five minutes or whatever. Right. Uh, Throw the shoe at Ahmadinejad. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that sort of thing. Something a little bit more substantial. Uh, I don't think a lot of people do. So. so you talked about the challenges of the production cycle. When you first decided, okay, I'm going to make this a real game, what sort of research did you have to do? How did you figure out what it takes to make a board game? And more importantly, what does it take to make a real board game? Um, well, I'm still figuring that out as I go, honestly. You know, I, I come from a, a background of digital games where, and generally small digital games, so like Flash games or whatever. Mm -hmm. To release a game like that, you spend you know a year or whatever making the game, and then you post it online and you wipe your hands, you're done, right? Uh, it turns out that there are so many more steps to creating a non-digital game and so many more people involved. Um, it's, it's a lot more like the digital game market industry, I guess, um, was uh, before digital distribution, when you had to go through a store to get your game into people's hands, which involved you know, manufacturing actual physical things and then finding a way to distribute it and, uh, you know, actually <laughs> making people take more steps than clicking right. a link. Um, so uh, that's been a real eye-opener for me. Um, but when I was kind of first thinking about this, I decided to take the opportunity to really, like, learn as much as I could about the full production cycle, um, sort of learn all it takes to um, create a, a board game. Um, and when I was starting, uh, I guess the, the first thing I did was just read as much as I could. Um, so I, I delved into the Board Game Geek, the preeminent uh, website for all things non-digital game related, board game related. And there's a number of posts on there, a number of forums on creating your own games. Generally, they kind of end at the design process, but there is some ver very valuable information about self-publishing, so going through the next steps. For me, the sort of biggest obstacle was figuring out how much it would cost and how to print it, basically. Um, and there are a number of printers, but um, I'm kind of fortunate in that I was kind of entering this space at the tail end of the sort of Wild West period for Kickstarter and crowdfunding. There had basically already been enough uh, board game developers who've used Kickstarter to get a pretty good idea of how to do it and also to get the attention of printers. Um, so printers were used to doing these sort of small print runs for small companies or uh, individuals even. But it was, it was just before um, or kind of as it was starting for bigger publishers to get involved. So it was still, a, it was still possible, and it, it still is to some degree now, to do a little bit more of a haphazard kind of a, a small individual uh, Kickstarter. Uh, people aren't expecting necessarily, you know, pristine art, uh, an extensive uh, catalog of existing games they can check out, um, and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. When you decided to use Kickstarter as a platform to fund the production of the first print run of Corporate America, how did you price things out? How did you figure out how much money you needed and how many copies of the game that would get you and how they would arrive at your door? 
first I just um, basically this was in probably May or so or even uh, April of last year I started contacting printers I did as much research as I could to figure out what printers are available and then I started requesting quotes from them and since I was new in this space I also was requesting some assistance on different components for the game that were slightly unusual um, compared to a lot of other games out there. Yeah, hard to find someone who can print both a board game and a special hat. <laughs> well, the special hat honestly came a little bit later and <laughs> uh, was also made a little bit more haphazardly as well. And I knew that the game probably wouldn't come with a hat. Um, and mm-hmm. In case people are wondering what we're talking about, uh, the president is strongly encouraged to wear a silly hat, which sort of ups the uh, humor of the game, uh, kind of is a little bit of a jab at, uh, <laughs> you know, social status and uh, signifiers based on fashion or whatever. So I wanted I wanted something in the game that would represent the president without actually being a hat, and it, I wasn't sure where to go with that. I mean, I was also clueless about a lot of other things. So, for example, I didn't know, um, I had a, a reasonably good idea that, printers were used to printing cards in, a fi- in fixed quantities, which were basically sheets of cards. But I didn't know how many cards needed to be printed. Uh, so kind of getting help on that was super useful. The, the money in the game is one-sided, and it's really important that it's one-sided because you use it to secretly bid on who should be president. Um, and I wasn't sure the best way of doing that, whether tokens or cards or some other solution. Um, so I needed to talk to people who are used to this kind of thing to get some feedback on that kind of thing. And it turns out when I started talking to printers, the quantity of games that I could print, that wasn't so much under my control. Another big difference between digital games and physical games is the number of games that you need to sell or whatever to be success. For digital games, you know, the numbers are in the millions, basically. Um, or at least hundreds of thousands. Um, right. For for example, Celia uh, is slowly approaching a million plays on Congregate. This is like after five or six years or whatever. I wouldn't even consider that a huge success or anything. But for uh, for board games, you know, we're talking if you sell a thousand games, you've done really well. Um, right. Uh, basically, it was clear to me that I needed to create as few games as possible. And uh, printers uh, who are like seriously printing the game, you can you can get print on demand, which is very expensive and generally has lower quality. <laughs> it's the one-two punch of low quality and high price. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you get flexibility. And actually, I, I should say that um, the print on demand service I've used is the Game Crafter. And... Uh, it is excellent for prototypes. For a long time, I used the um, copy that I got from them as the prototype because it looks much more professional than the prototypes I can print myself. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it shows off the game better. But also, if I want to send my uh, game to a reviewer or a, uh, a publisher or whatever, I can just request them to make a copy of the game and they'll ship it and everything. And it's you know, it's probably comparable in price to just doing it myself, especially right. when I consider the time it takes to create a game. So that's a service that anybody who is doing their own board games and wants to take them to the next level should probably check out. Yeah. Um, so what, what printer did you ultimately go with? 
Um, I ended up going with uh, Panda Game Manufacturing. They're a, uh, a company based out of Vancouver that has um, printers in uh, China. So, um, you know, one, one interesting thing with this whole experience has been kind of diving headfirst into the global economy, <laughs> which uh, I've never really been involved in before. You can get um, games printed in uh, the United States or Europe, but they're significantly more expensive than getting games printed in China. It's hard to say what sacrifices you're making for those cheap, uh, or the cheaper games. The quality can be worse and stuff. One advantage with Panda is that they have um, native English speakers and people who are um, used to sort of Western production values. You get a little bit of a discount, uh, not quite as much as you would get if you just went with a purely Chinese manufacturer, but more of a discount than you'd get if you went with a U.S. or European uh, printer with sort of the customer service and quality control that you would get from one of those Western printers. Got it. And to do a print run, how many copies of Corporate America did you have to get made? Uh, I went with the smallest number that I could, which was 1,500. Mm -hmm. um, and it ended up actually being more than that because, you know, they have a little bit of a buffer to make sure that if there are defects or whatever, they can, you know, they have some extras to get rid of or whatever. Got it. Um, so that's, that's how much I, I uh, ended up getting, was the fewest that I could effectively. If corporate America sells well enough for a second print run, that's awesome. But I can't really bank on that happening. You know, I can't expect that to happen. So, You talked before about physical printing constraints affecting, potentially affecting the design. This almost reminds me of like engine constraints or performance constraints when we were doing digital games. So did you have to make any design compromises for the sake of printing and production, physical manufacturing? I ended up looking out because I did end up cutting maybe like one or two cards from the game, but they weren't like essential cards or anything like that. And that was just to uh, make the number of cards in the game an even... Uh, number for the number of sheets that I was going to create um, or have printed. The only other sort of compromise that I made, um, I kind of mentioned before that the money in the game is cards, and I ended up going with slightly fewer money cards than I would have liked to keep it an even number of the sheets. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that almost never affects the game, but it can sometimes get pretty close. <laughs> and if players did want to, you know, extend the game or whatever, because it's easy to sort of adjust how long it will last, they're probably going to run out of money cards. Um, which is, you know, I would like that to be totally out of the minds of the players. I'd like them to just be able to play to their heart's content. And it's kind of annoying when you get jolted back into reality by like, oh, we're out of these bills or whatever. I would say that's the biggest sacrifice that I had to make based on physical constraints from the manufacturing process. That said, the game is, it would be nice if the game was a little bit cheaper. And since sort of learning about all of this stuff, the game designs I've been working on since then have very much considered the manufacturing constraints. So I'm trying to sort of work within that system a little bit better to keep the price of games down, basically, and to make them more practical. Wow, that parallels perfectly <laughs> video game development. Once you've done it a couple times, you start 
basically becoming a smarter designer and making smarter choices to make a game that is easier to create so that you can hit your deadline and actually release. I mean, it's, it's like when you first start, the sky is the limit, right? You can do whatever you want, <laughs> any game under the sun, but there's almost no way of knowing these constraints that are always going to be there. Um, so once you kind of know them, you sort of realize that maybe the sky isn't quite the limit. <laughs> what are one or two tips that you'd give to first-time board game printers to help them keep the cost of manufacturing down? First of all, try to minimize the components as much as you can. Having, having nice components is a big selling uh, point for games, but a lot of the games that you're used to are made by already successful publishers who already have you know, strong distribution connections and are basically going to get their games on store shelves no matter what. As a first-time uh, designer or uh, publisher, you can't, you can't expect to sell that many games, and it's a lot easier to sell a game that's cheaper than it is to sell one that's more expensive, even if the more expensive one has a lot of like flashy components or whatever. One of the easiest things to think about is that of cards is generally 54 cards, um, which is a deck of cards plus two jokers. So try to get your game to be 54 cards if you can. And if you can't, make it 108 cards. Uh, boards are expensive, so if you can get away with it, don't include a board. You know, specialized components tend to be expensive, so if you can, just use more generic uh, components. If you're trying to make your first game, try and make Citadels. Don't try and make Settlers of Catan. Exactly, yeah. Uh, or even worse, don't try to make, like, Memoir 44, which has a bunch of, like, customized miniatures in it or whatever. Mm -hmm. It is a good thing that Teal views his experience with corporate America as an opportunity to learn because he is about $10,000 in the hole just to print, market, and ship the game, not even taking into account his opportunity cost. Along the way, he has learned a tremendous amount about running a Kickstarter and bringing a physical good to market. So here you are, you are one dude in Oakland. You want, you need to print up 1,500 copies of your game and have them shipped via uh, like an actual shipping container, right? From China. Um, yeah. Um, how much money do you need to raise just to cover the cost? Uh, that's a, that's a good question and one that I'm continuing to learn about. <laughs> there are all sorts of costs that I didn't really anticipate. I ended up raising $20,000 on Kickstarter, which is enough to print out all of the games and ship them from China. But that doesn't cover the cost of shipping the games to customers, and it doesn't cover the cost of art, and it doesn't cover the cost of advertising and marketing. It doesn't cover the cost of sending random prototypes to reviewers or one thing I've been fortunate with for Corporate America is that I've been able to get it in a number of conferences. Um, it doesn't cover the cost of any of that. And uh, one big blow that I <laughs> was dealt recently was that I didn't, I, the Kickstarter campaign ran from October to November of last year to coincide with the presidential election as much as I could get away with. And so I ended up getting the money last year, but I didn't end up spending any of the money last year. So mm -hmm. I ended up having to pay uh, income tax on it, which, you know, that's, that's money that I'll never get back. I'll probably be in the hole as far as money this year. So uh, 
all told, um, I haven't done an exact calculation, but I would say that $30,000 was probably about as much as I needed to print the game, ship it from China, ship it to customers, and also produce the game in, in terms of art and software that I needed and marketing and all of that kind of stuff. Got it. So really there were a lot of hidden costs, and so far you, it sounds like you're pretty deep in the hole on <laughs> just the printing of corporate America. I would say so, uh, especially when you think of the opportunity cost, considering I was you know, fortunate that I was able to spend basically full time on the game, um, but you know, I wasn't making money that I would have made if I was you know, programming or something like that at a company or whatever. You know, I know we talked a couple times while you were running the Kickstarter. What lessons do you have to share, you know, maybe one or two quick bullet points specifically for people trying to raise money for board games on Kickstarter? What do you wish you had done before you started out? I mean, other than obviously a uh, had a more full view of the budget. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll just say three things. First of all, I would say that appearances are very important, especially with respect to the video. Uh, that's how a lot of people will experience your product. And uh, so you really want to make sure that that looks professional and uh, that the product itself looks professional. I've come from a background of ideas, basically. So I'm interested in the mechanics. I'm interested in how uh, the experiences that it will create uh, in players. The presentation wasn't t- terribly important to me, but it is terribly important to a lot of people, especially when those people are giving you maybe a minute or two at most. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely make polished um, and uh, get get your friends who are into videos to help you with it. We all have one, right? We all have at least one. <laughs> if you don't have one, you should try to find one. <laughs> so uh, that's one thing. Another thing is sort of plan the campaign in advance. The campaign is more than just like a pitch. You're creating an experience for the uh, backers. And when I started my campaign, I didn't really have a great idea of what I was going to be doing week one versus week two versus week three. You should really think about secrets that you're going to unveil as the campaign goes. It's okay to like hide some information at the beginning to make it more exciting. Because a lot of people on Kickstarter are in it for the thrill of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, was, I was listening to your last podcast and you guys were talking about how a lot of people on Kickstarter, they'll pledge and they won't even like get the game or whatever that they're pledging for. They're in it for the ideas and they're in it for the excitement of the campaign. You know, the last 24 hours of my campaign were thrilling, not just for me, but for a lot of people who backed it. You know, it was an exciting, exhilarating experience. And so you want to create that. Sort of thinking about the campaign in terms of uh, game design uh, helps, giving people rewards and that kind of thing, stretch goals or whatever. The last thing that I would say is when you're creating something like a a board game or even most likely a digital game, you want to get media exposure. Um, You want people to see the game in advance. You want some reviewers to see it. And you want some third parties to get a chance to, you know, make it so people don't have to take your word for it. And that's something that I did all right, but it would have benefited me to have made more uh, appearances at conventions and uh, trying to get more uh, respected reviewers to see the game in advance. Mm -hmm. Um, And also also, uh, just getting uh, 
you know, bloggers to write about it or um, podcasters to um, have an interview or whatever. Those people are always looking for material and uh, you're looking to get your game out there. So uh, it's kind of a win-win situation. Those are all great lessons. So you said that the last 24 hours of the campaign were very thrilling. Um, going into that last day, how short of your goal were you and how much, because it was just like kind of by the skin of the teeth that you hit that goal, right? Yeah, that's correct. So I didn't realize this at the time, but my uh, Kickstarter curve, uh, funding curve, kind of followed what a lot of uh, other campaigns follow. Uh, basically, what you'll see is sort of the initial two or three days, you'll see a huge spike where there's a lot of interest in your product or whatever, and you're getting a lot of support from friends and family and, and uh, Kickstarter enthusiasts. Um, but then things sort of taper off, and uh, for maybe two or three weeks, the campaign was continuously making money, but just very little. It was almost flatlined. So in the last 48 hours, I probably I had over a third of my my goal to reach. So from 48 to 24 hours, I probably got another 10% uh, of that or so. Mm -hmm. The last 24 hours, it shot up uh, to just barely getting getting what I needed. So that was uh, probably like 20 to 25%, maybe even 30% of what I was going for in that last 24 hours alone which was, uh, you know, quite the experience. I'd kind of uh, come very close to giving up on the campaign. Yeah, it was very exciting and uh, very unexpected uh, that the campaign ended up working out there at the last minute. So where are you now in the production cycle? Are the games printed? Are they on their way by sea? The game is so close to being released. It's not quite out yet. One area that I failed to research was sort of the distribution system of uh, board games. And after the Kickstarter was successful, and after I started the printing process, which was uh, in sort of January and February this year, I realized that I was going to get 1,500 board games sent to my apartment. <laughs> my tiny little Oakland apartment. And I realized, and you know, then I was going to have to ship out, you know, 250 or 300 copies to supporters. And then I was going to have to try to get them into store shelves. I was going to have to try to move all of these copies of the game. And I didn't really want them clogging up my apartment. So I really should have looked for a distributor before um, even running the campaign, even starting the campaign. I did a good job in looking for printers. I didn't do a good job in looking for distributors. It's a little bit of a catch-22 because you kind of need something to be able to show them. And uh, if you don't have something that they can see and they, they can value, they're probably not going to give you the time of day. Right. But uh, you still should try. <laughs> At least try to develop a relationship and start thinking about how the relationship will work when the game is successful. Um, I ended up looking out. So um, Game Salute ended up picking up Corporate America. They are a distributor that they help a lot of Kickstarter, sort of like smaller uh, publishers. They've been great. The game has made its long intercontinental journey from China and is now mostly in their warehouses in New Hampshire. <laughs> and they are in the process of sending the game out. So I'm actually hoping to receive my sort of big 
uh, collection for all of my Bay Area and Santa Cruz supporters uh, tomorrow, if all goes to plan. We'll kind of see how that works out. And Kickstarter supporters elsewhere should expect their games within the next, you know, two to three weeks, basically. Got it. And so these guys are going to uh, help put your game in store shelves, specialty shops, and um, sell it online? That's the hope. They'll definitely be selling it online. They also have connections to a lot of shops, but the board game industry is very uh, competitive. There are a lot of games out there and not a lot of uh, shelf space. I'm going to be doing what I can to try to get the game in as many you know, Bay Area and West Coast game shops as possible. And uh, they'll be announcing it, and they'll be sending it out in their newsletter and giving game stores the opportunity to uh, get it themselves. But we'll kind of see how much it ends up getting in stores. Uh, What I'm really excited about, and I hope this happens, is walking into a game store in a random city where I've never been and seeing it there on the shelf. Um, But (laughs) that might be asking too much. We'll kind of see. That would be amazing. A day or two after we recorded this interview, Teal uploaded a photo to Facebook showing boxes stacked high with final copies of Corporate America. If you would like to help him declutter his apartment of all these board games, you can order your own copy of Corporate America at nothingsacredgames.com and follow him at nothingsacredg on Twitter. The Game Dev Life podcast is brought to you by Quarter Spiral, currently developing Enhanced Wars a multiplayer-first turn-based strategy game for PC, Mac, Linux, and web browser. Enhanced Wars is coming to Kickstarter in the fall of this year. For the latest on Enhanced Wars, as well as future podcasts and other Quarter Spiral news, follow us at Quarter Spiral on Twitter and check out our website, quarterspiral.com.